Welcome to the Petite Polymath. This is your host, Britt Stone. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, the collection, actually the memoir, if you will, um, called This Will Be My Undoing by Morgan Jerkins, not Jenkins. Uh, So stay tuned. Okay, so I'm back. Um, Full disclosure, if you hear a very zen, like, whooshing water noise in the background, which is possible, it's because I'm sitting on my patio because it's a really pretty day and I needed some vitamin D from being in the clinic all day. Okay, so Morgan Jerkins, this will be my undoing. Uh, another recommended um, book, which was really fascinating, pretty much is her view of growing up as a, a black woman in middle to upper middle class uh, in California. She's young. She graduated from Princeton in 2014. Um, So a very perceptive, I would say wise beyond her years, um, young woman uh, who kind of gives us a synopsis of the intersections of blackness, femininity, um, you know, current culture, religion, sexuality, um, views about intellect, lots of things. So I really enjoyed uh, this book. I think I read it in a day. And uh, I would say that even though I'm older than Morgan, uh, the story that she tells is one that probably m- many black women in America can commiserate with. I think something that I thought about, and I actually ended up emailing her, Um, to tell her this, uh, that we often can believe the lie of the monolith in black culture, and it's not just something that people that aren't black do, black people do it too. And so when I wrote her, I told her that I was very proud of her for one, writing this this book, but two, uh, that I had believed the lie that I was an aberration Um, to my ethnicity when I was a kid and that if I had known other girls like me or at least had had access to popular culture that reinforced that there were girls who looked like me, who liked the things I liked, I probably wouldn't have felt so isolated. And I think that there are lots of little black girls throughout the United States and I venture to say probably also in, you know, other areas of the of the diaspora uh, for whom this will resonate, um, especially because in lots of in lots of ways we end up, you know, either we're siloed into big groups and stereotypes are reinforced, or we are tokens in these places where we don't have anyone else with us. And when we do have someone there, because there's two of us, there's a weird competition or animosity as opposed to a unity. Because then you don't want to be, oh, the, the black people in the room that are, you know, ganging up together. Uh, you want to be your own person. And so I think that uh, these spaces of figuring out what it looks like to be a nerdy black girl um, are places that we need to, to delve into. And I would say, I mean, I think currently in popular culture, this is something that's happening with much more... Um, Normalcy, you know, we've got, we had Wrinkle in Time, we have Blackish, we have someone like Yara Shahidi or Amanda Stenberg, 
um, who are very vocal and quirky, you know, Willow Smith. You have all these girls that are not, uh, quote unquote, the stereotypical black girl, whatever that's supposed to mean, honestly. Um, you know, they read whatever they want to read. They travel the world. They might be learning another language. They might like indie rock music. They might wear Converse, <laughs> you know, like there's more space to be many different things. And that is extremely freeing. Uh, and so I, it's a, it's a, with all of the, the downsides to being an adolescent in this current world, social media, um, not being able to ever get away from your mistakes, um, there is something about the identity aspect of being able to see yourself in culture that I think is very helpful. She's, she struck some really interesting balances, I found. Um, this idea about the hypersexuality of, um, that's imposed on, on black girls in particular uh, and how they are treated differently, particularly black and Latina girls treated differently than their white counterparts um, by boys. So this is something that personally, I, I look back and I'm actually extremely thankful that I did not experience. I mean, I was the only black kid in my class from kindergarten to eighth grade with the exception of two black boys in my class in first grade. That was it. And I mean, I hit puberty with a bunch of white boys. And I don't know if it was just that I got lucky enough to have guys that weren't jerks um, or just that we were familiar and close enough um, for that to just not be on the table. Um, but I consider myself extremely fortunate, you know, given even just the, the experiences that Morgan talks about uh, versus like Roxanne Gay and her experience as a young, you know, as a beginning to become young woman um, and the violence that she experienced at the hands of, of white boys um, that were, you know, supposed to be her friends. Um, and then the shame that is incurred and the implication that it's your fault that these things happen to your body. Um, and, it, and then she talks about kind of the overcorrection of that um, and how in the church, particularly in black churches, uh, you know, celibacy and, and the almost, she would coin it this repression of sexual desire, sexuality in, people, in women coming of age is, is something that's kind of damped down and stamped out for their protection uh, because for so long the bodies of, of black girls were not seen as, um, as bodies to be protected and uh, nurtured uh, and preserved. Um, they were violated, they were taken advantage of, taken for granted by, you know, all sorts of men. Um, and and so that is another, another place that she talks about this tension. And as a, someone else who's a Christian, uh, I found that to be very interesting. I, I would venture to say I, I don't agree with the assessment that Christianity itself has built in sexism um, or sexual repression. I mean, if you read Song of Solomon, clearly that's not on the table at all. Like these, they're not prudes. <laughs> um, there is a, an understanding of sex in context. And if you read Proverbs, then you know that it's not just directed at women, it's also directed at men, um, within the understanding that in, con in social context, 
there's always been this gender dynamic that I think the Bible has observed and told us about, but never lauded if you actually do deep study. Um, so that's another thing altogether. Um, she also talks about the violence that black girls uh, visit on each other. So it can be both psychological and physical. Uh, I want to read a, um, a part that she mentions. I actually screenshot it because it struck me. Uh, she says, um, Belonging to the world of black women demands strength, on your feet wit, and aggression, because space for and by ourselves is small. You either assert yourself or learn to do so through humiliation, exposing who you really are, just another black girl fighting to exist. And this is in uh, reference to some girls who, she, who she's being bullied by. She never fights back physically, but in her head she thinks she's better than them. I can totally commiserate because I spent all of high school thinking I was better than pretty much every black girl I came across, with the exception of maybe like one or two, uh, because I knew I was being judged as someone not black enough, someone who thought they were too good, even though I didn't, at least when I, I didn't think that coming in, but it was a defense mechanism. The superiority was a defense mechanism against the rejection I felt from black girls in my school. Uh, and of course, I was at the disadvantage of having hard, no classes with them hardly. I didn't ride the bus. My grandma picked me up from school. So it was kind of a setup to really never have to mingle with people. Um, the church I went to didn't have any black girls in it. So I had to deprogram myself from the initial reaction of judging someone's intellect, character, um, you know, in general humanity based only on what grammar they spoke, how loud they were, what they wore, who they were hanging around. I had to learn how to undo the knee-jerk reaction of superiority. It took time. I'd venture to say that as long as I'm a human, it's going to be a work in progress. Like We're always uh, trying to face the biases we have in our heads, look at them and decide if they, if they are helpful or hurtful and try to give the person in front of us you know, the benefit of the doubt if we're actually trying to be a decent human. And Morgan says in the book that she realized that she needed to be holding her sisters up, not tearing them down, um, that we were all just trying to survive and live life. And we had been dealt with different hands and we needed to be supportive of each other regardless of where we were coming from, which I think is something that as an adult, um, I have really tried to internalize. I also really liked her, her story of explaining what it was like to um, transition into an elite university, once again, a majority culture and finding her voice about the things that she felt needed to be addressed and how uh, voices in the majority tried to diminish that or say it's just because you're black that you're even here. Which is so fascinating because, you know, nobody ever says it's just because you're rich that you're here. I mean, maybe someone says that somewhere. Maybe it's just my friends that say that about people who are trust fund babies or get into schools on legacy. But you don't really hear people complain about that. 
They complain about affirmative action as if, um, you know, there's a bunch of unqualified people flooding schools and jobs. The people that are unqualified usually aren't there by affirmative action. They're usually there by nepotism. And who usually does nepotism? It's a very different situation. Um, the demographic is completely different. But people never seem to get us up in the air about that, which is something that I'm, I've always found interesting. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I know what it's like to have someone say to me, you only got into that medical school or you only got into that college because you're black and they needed to fill a quota. And it's like, well, I mean, even if that is the case, which it's not the case, I actually have to still make grades to stay there. So, how about that? Um, so yes, I, I, thought, uh, I thought that Morgan's piece was just incredibly poignant, very timely. Um, I would encourage you, if you want to know what it's like to, to, to see from the lens of a, of a, a young black woman to read this, um, She's brutally honest. She actually talks about travel and uh, her time in Russia. So she's a, poly she's a polyglot. She speaks multiple languages, um, which I have mad props for. She lived in Japan. She lived in Russia, um, just to name a few. And she talks about what it's like being in these other places. I think in Japan, she was just a foreigner. She wasn't black, which she found to be so freeing. And then in Russia, um, that was not the case. And Russia is apparently super racist, um, which I wasn't really expecting, but I guess that's not shocking. Uh, I would say that I know what that's like to travel abroad and to actually feel like you're being seen. And I think that that's where the American kicks in. Like, you know, when I go to Europe, being American comes ahead of the being black almost, whereas I talk to black friends from the UK, for example, and when they come to the States, you know, that accent defines them as others. So they're British before they're black here, right? Um, and I have thought a lot about traveling while black, especially as a woman, single, this, you know, more, more recently in some parts of the world. Particularly, you know, Southern Europe, given the migrant crises, uh, you know, I think, goodness, like this might not be a good time to be a single black woman in Italy or Spain. Um, you know, the women being trafficked for sex from, from Africa, um, even uh, Venezuela, you know, um, Argentina, places that are, I mean, little, you know, girls are being kidnapped from Trinidad and Tobago because that's off the coast of Venezuela for trafficking. It's a very disturbing times right now. Um, and, you know, it, it lends the question, like, where is it safe to be in this body? Uh, which is kind of a larger existential question altogether. Um, I think at the end of the day, it is confidence in knowing that you are enough in and of yourself, that you have inherent value, and that where you are is where you're supposed to be. There's no place that you should not be. Any room you're in, you should be in. 
you have a right to be in. You have a right to sit at the table. And if they don't make room for the, you at the table, you make a new table. And so I highly recommend this will be my undoing. I appreciate her braveness. I'm excited to see what else she writes. Um, and that's what I've got. I'm going to come back in a little bit with what is making me happy, which, honestly, I'm telling you, the news is uh, dragging me down right now. Okay, what's making me happy? Thai food. So I had friends in town this weekend, and um, we went to this awesome restaurant in Austin called Tycoon. Uh, it makes me want to plan a trip to Thailand as soon as possible. Um, I've been there before, but it's nice when you actually go with a friend and not just like sitting by, at the bar by yourself eating crap fried rice. Uh, so uh, we had this like awesome whole fried fish and this really wonderful coconut rice mushroom tofu situation. I was very happy. It is just like all endorphins are released when you get really tasty food. And the chef is from Southern Thailand, so he like does not change the heat profile for anyone. So it's, it's authentic, and it's, you know, of course, reasonably priced. And it was just lovely to eat really good food with people who knew me well. And so I would encourage everyone that in this time right now where it feels like there seems to be no silver lining to anything in the news, love people well. Lean into your friends. Make new friends. Be kind to strangers. Smile at little kids. Pet a dog. Like, laugh. Find something that's going to give you joy because we're going to be in this for a while, but we need to look out for each other. And, you know, not to be cliche, but uh, Galatians says that um, not to weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap a harvest. And so I would say don't get tired of doing what's good. Don't get tired of trying to bring joy. And because I just watched um, Won't You Be My Neighbor with Mr. Rogers, be a co-repairer of creation. The Petite Polymath is a podcast from the mind of Britstone. All thoughts, profound or idiotic, are all hers. Hope you enjoyed.